I'm not sure how many of you football fans are aware of this, but in, in 2021, uh, the Winnipeg Blue Bombers won their second consecutive Grey Cup. But unlike the first one that they won in 2019, that game was really, really close. It was a nail-biter. It came down not just to the end of regulation. That game even went into overtime. And so as a Bombers fan, I mean, I was sweating. I'm sure I got an ulcer. I was on the edge of my seat. I was just tense. And it wasn't until that split second when the ball deflected into Kyrie Wilson's hand for that game-sealing interception where I could finally be at ease and celebrate yet another great cup victory. Well, because these don't happen very often, usually, uh, we're spoiled as Bombers fans these days. They don't happen very often, so I keep these games recorded on my PVR. And every once in a while, I'll go back and I'll watch at least parts of the game. And it's amazing to me, when I go and I watch the 2021 Grey Cup, I don't have any nervous feelings at all. I don't sit on the edge of my seat. I don't have any more sweat or ulcers or anything like that because I know how the game ends. And knowing how it ends changes the entire experience of watching the game. Now, if you've been paying very close attention all throughout the book of 1 Peter, he has kept the second coming of Jesus in view. In fact, when he's talking about how we ought to live and treat one another and what our priorities should be, all these different things we've learned about and studied together, he says it's all to be revealed or all to, to, to have this goal uh, at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And that revelation of Jesus Christ just means, Peter says, Jesus is coming again soon. He'll be revealed to the world again soon. We know the end. And he does this again in 1 Peter 4, verse 7, which starts with the words that the end of all things is at hand. The end of all things, the revelation of Jesus Christ, his return is at hand. So because we know the end, and because it is drawing closer, we should live differently. Just like my experience with the Bombers game was different. When I knew the end, when I knew what was going to happen eventually, it changed my entire experience. And Peter says the same thing is true. We know Jesus is going to return. We know that he will right all of these wrongs and fix everything that is broken and usher into this completed kingdom of God where we can be with him forever. We know that's the end. And so as we wait for that end to come, we should live and experience this life differently. Well, how do we live differently? Let's find out together. I want to invite you to open your Bibles up to 1 Peter chapter 4. It's really quick for me to do so because I have my bookmark right there. And we're going to read verses 7 to 11. Sometimes we've gone over huge parts of a passage. It's a very, very short passage today, but an important one for us to read and to study. This is what Peter tells his listeners and us today. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, Keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks is one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves is one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. The end of all things is at hand. Or, as you may have heard it traditionally throughout the years, the end is nigh, which was my favorite way to title this sermon. The end is nigh. And this has been a claim and a cry of the church since 
The, the very first church with, with Peter and, and the initial listeners of these words all the way throughout the years until us now. The end is still nigh. We are still awaiting that second coming of Jesus Christ. And so while we are waiting, we have this nasty habit of trying to predict when this will happen. So I just want to share with you just a few, a very few of the many myriad different predictions of the end of the world and the return of Jesus through church history. Martin of Tours made a pronouncement that Jesus would return in the year 400. So he kind of got the party started. But it wasn't too much longer than that in, in AD 5500, sorry, in which three gentlemen, Hippolytus of Rome, Sextus Julianus of, of Africanus, and Irenaeus. Wow, I really butchered those names. But they were real people. Irenaeus especially was a very prominent early church theologian, or a patriarch, as you will. Uh, and they, they said that Jesus would return in the year 500, and they based that prediction on the dimensions of Noah's Ark. So apparently there wasn't a lot else to do in the year 500. That's how bored they were. Pope Innocent III said Jesus would return in 1284, which was 666 years after the rise of Islam, which was a very crusady way of looking at life. But that was the time that Pope Innocent lived. Even in our own Anabaptist heritage, we have some predictions, like the one from Thomas Munster in 1525. He was a radical Anabaptist who was politically involved and killed by government troops in the German Peasants' War, but not before he said Christ would return in 1525. Later, we have William Miller, or the Millerites, who said that Jesus would come back in, in March 21st, 1844. And then the calculations were slightly off, so they said that he would come again October 22nd, 1844. For those of you who have grown up your whole life in the church, you may be familiar with Herbert W. Armstrong, founder of the Worldwide Church of God. He said Jesus would come in 1936, 1943, 1972, and finally in 1975. None of those predictions have aged very well. Something more contemporary could be an example like Harold Camping. He said Jesus would return on September 6th, 1994. I love how he's very specific. And then September 29th, 94. October 2nd, 94. March 31st, 95. Then he gave it a rest for a while, only to re-enter the prediction game by saying Jesus would come back May 21st in 2011 and October 21st, 2011, at which point he decided to give up. And then, something that was more of, of my childhood and teenage years, many, many different predictions that Jesus would return in the year 2000, the whole Y2K thing. There was tons of theories, secular, religious, otherwise, not very many of which came to fruition. Now, I know it's confusing to see all these different predictions and to look at all the different varied history, but luckily... I'm here for you guys. And so what I've done is I've poured over Scripture. I've prayed. I've discerned. I've felt in my heart. And so I've actually come up with a prediction of my own um, about when Jesus is going to return. Um, okay. Dean, do you have anything on Acts 1-7 that might derail this train a little bit? Jesus said to his disciples, it is not for you to know the times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own Authority. Okay, fair point, Tim. Thank you. Um, you guys want to see, just, just for funsies, what I, would, what I came up with for my prediction? There's a giant shrug emoji. So, I wouldn't have been much help there either. The end is nigh. There is so much. The, 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 the whole point, 
is that the church history is littered with people who are ready for Jesus to come at any moment. And in fact, I've had many conversations about how it feels now. Like, well, look at all these wildfires and, and floods and, and the pandemic and all of these tensions. And doesn't it feel like the end is nigh? And yet we can look back at each and every generation before us and they felt the exact same way. And partly that's because it's true. This world is bent and broken and it does await the time in which Christ will return to put everything back in order. But we don't know exactly what that time will be. What do we know for sure? We know for sure that Jesus is going to return. We know for sure that we do not know the time. So we need to live in a state of readiness for this to happen at any time moment. And so we continue to unpack First Peter chapter 4 here. We see that Peter says, the end of all things is at hand. It's close. It's, it's drawing closer. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. And, and that phrase, self-controlled and sober-minded, that, that reminds us of our very first sermon in this series and how the fact is that we need to be prepared. So to be sober-minded is to be clear-headed and self-controlled, not giving in to uh, the, the temptations of this world, to live in such a way that you're ready for action and you're clear-headed so that when God moves, you are ready to move with him. And when Christ returns, you are ready to go with him ready for action, clear-headed with the right priorities. In fact, Peter declares that living this way doesn't just get us ready for the return of Christ, but it will help our prayers. It helps our prayers not because somehow God will be more pleased with us, will be more inclined to listen to us because now we've done the right thing. No, it helps our prayers because it helps us pray for the right things and pray in the right way. I like what Wayne Grudem said in his commentary on 1 Peter. He says, Christians should be alert to events and evaluate them correctly in order to be able to pray more intelligently. Peter's words also imply that prayer based on knowledge and mature evaluation of a situation is more effective uh, as a more effective prayer. What this verse teaches could well be put into practice when reading the newspaper, listening to the news, traveling to work, and so on. And so when we do hear, all of these disasters and tensions, and when we see more end-time predictions that will inevitably pop up when we, when we come across conspiracy theories on our social media, <laughs> we evaluate the state of the world around us, we can do so knowing the end. We live differently, we pray differently, because we know how it ends. And that gives us discernment, and it sets up clear priorities, and we can now interact with this news differently. Jesus himself reminds his followers that knowing the end and being prepared for it, being sober and self-disciplined, gives us strength to make it until the end. This is found in Luke 21, verses 34 to 36. And I just want to point out to you how all of these themes of being sober and self-controlled and prayer come together in the teaching of Christ. He says to his followers, But watch yourselves lest your hearts be weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness and cares of this life, that the day come upon you suddenly like a trap. For it will come upon all who dwell on the face of the whole earth. But stay awake at all times, praying that you may have strength to escape all these things that are going to take place and to stand before the Son of Man. He says, do not be drunk with the cares of this world. Be sober-minded. Stay awake be self-controlled, and pray so that you will have strength when that end arrives. 
Our prayers are to be informed and prioritized with the coming kingdom of Christ while also being a source of strength to endure what must take place between now and then. So we know the end, and we know that we are to live with certain priorities in mind, to be sober and self-controlled. So what are these priorities? How do we live differently because the end is nigh? Well, the first thing that Peter says is that we ought to love stubbornly, or that's my paraphrase. This is the way that he puts it, just to remind you here in verse 8. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Above all, that's a huge indicator to us. I mean, really, when you see a highlighted ver- uh, um, phrase or word like that, this is, this is clearly to draw our attention. And so if you were to take one thing from here, one practical thing that you can do, is, is Peter makes it clear, above all, love one another earnestly. This is the priority. So he will give us a few ways in which we should live in light of the fact that we know the end is at hand. But the, it's not a list that's all created equal. There is one thing above all else, and that is to love one another. And not just in any way, but to love each other earnestly. That verb in Greek, earnestly, can mean tense, eager, or resolute. And I think it is good to be earnest or to be eager about something, but if we define love that way, then it can be too set upon our emotions and how we feel. And what if we're not passionate? What if we're not eager or don't feel earnest about loving? I think really the the word that, that roots this definition for me is the one that we need to love in a way that's resolute, that's unwavering, that's stubborn, that's steadfast, that never stops. We need to love stubbornly. I have a picture. Sometimes pictures paint this, this idea better for us than words can. And we have this picture now of a field, or sorry, a tree in a field where all these other trees have been decimated, but it is staying there. It is resolute. It is, it is being a tree. It's doing what it has been created to do. No matter what else will happen around it, it continues doing what it's been created to do. And in the same way, as the world shifts and changes around us as, as the church, as Christ followers, as, as the priorities of the world change, as the beliefs of the world change, uh, we are called to be resolute and unwavering in our love for one another, especially in those things that seek to tear us apart. And when we can love stubbornly, it becomes much easier to deal with all of those disagreements or hardships or frustrations or even sins against one another. As Peter had phrased it, love covers a multitude of sins. And I do believe Peter, as a a Jewish disciple of Christ, would have found uh, or been reminded of this teaching in Proverbs that he would have learned from his youth. In Proverbs 10 verse 12, which says, hatred stirs up strife, but love covers up all offenses. So Peter would have learned this as a youth. He's reiterating the importance of this in in the church, in the body, the family of Jesus Christ. But we don't need to to know all of that. I I think this is plain and obvious to us in our everyday lives. When we love somebody resolutely and they return love, then we can put up with all sorts of other things. They don't become too important and discourage us from our relationship. Now, with my family at home, my wife and I, we still have some young kids at home, and there are a lot of frustrations that come with having kids that age. Sometimes it's just in the mess that they leave around the house, and so we'll, we'll get them down for, for night, and they're all sleeping, and then we look, and we see this mess, and we step on Lego, and it's frustrating. 
But then later on, we'll check on them and they're sleeping soundly. They look so beautiful. <laughs> like, oh. what, what you're reminded of the love that you have for them. This love that is so much greater than any of those frustrations or hardships. And it helps cover up those things and keep the big picture in mind. And that's not just for, for young families. I mean, that's true in, in any, any age, in any relationship, and especially in our relationship together as a church, when we are so determined and, and so proactive at loving one another, then when we do let each other down and drive each other crazy, it won't tear us apart. So first and above all, love stubbornly. But after setting the top priority of loving in this way, Peter calls us to live like the end is nigh by show, showing hospitality without grumbling. Or the way that I have phrased it, we need to host willingly. I mean, hosting is great. Uh, again, my, my wife Karen and I, we love hosting people in our home. Uh, many of you, the vast majority of you, have, have been invited. And if you're one of the few that haven't, then, then we will invite you over yet at some point soon. And one of the reasons we love to do this is it just... We're able to share a bit of our lives with you. When you come into our homes, you can see where we live and some of that mess that the kids make. And it allows our kids to be involved in building relationships. And then we'll, we'll, we'll eat a good meal that, that I had no hand in making. And, and then we'll enjoy it better because of that. And we just love hosting. It's a good thing to do. And I think, I think hosting is becoming a bit of a lost art because the, the, the world and the culture that we're a part of is increasingly individualistic. Now, prior to coming to Steinbach, I, I lived in Stonewall, Manitoba, and that was a true bedroom community. And so we saw this lived out. Sometimes there, it lacked a very neighborhood feel because people would, would wake up in the morning and then they would drive to work and they would work in the city and they'd come back and they'd drive into their garage and close the door and then that was it. Rinse and repeat the next day. It, just, it was really hard sometimes in some situations to have this neighborly feel. And so hosting is something that, that puts those barriers down, that invites people into your life in a small way. We need to be people that continue to host. But I would say that the hospitality Peter is talking about is so much more than just having people over for supper or for coffee, even though I do think that's a wonderful thing to do. You see, for the early church, hospitality could literally be a lifeline. It would be when someone was traveling between communities and they needed a place to stay, and you would open up your home, sometimes even when you didn't know that person. Or when there was a person or a family struggling to make ends meet, and they literally needed food to eat on their table, then hospitality would be feeding those who were hungry. Or perhaps someone who was, was, was now uh, lost a husband or a father and, and couldn't look out for themselves. And it could truly mean to, to open up your home on a long-term, maybe even permanent situation. That's the type of hospitality. It was, it was necessary in those days to have people willing to do this. That's the level of hospitality that Peter is saying, do this without grumbling. My question for us is, do we strive for this level of hospitality today? And what does that look like? And I want to encourage you, because I do see this happening in our church family and a few different stories that popped to mind immediately. It was at our Sunday school picnic, and I was on a team, and we were running around on that photo scavenger hunt. Anyone else remember that? That was a good time. It's a great photo scavenger hunt. And then Aaron Unruh was on my team, and he pulls me aside, and he says, hey, um, my, my wife, Janelle, we've been, we've been raising some pigs. We're feeding them. They're getting pretty big. Pretty soon they're ready to butcher. I'd like to donate a pig. Do you know of any families that could use that? And I was like, a whole bunch of bacon? Well, don't forget your pastor, first of all, right? 
Uh, but no, that, I just thought, I was like, okay, yeah, I think we could do that. Just, just wait. And uh, sure enough, a couple months later, the pig goes to butcher, and we were able to, to bless a few families that way through the generosity. I would say biblical hospitality that Aaron and Janelle showed. And they didn't know I was going to share this, and they're probably very embarrassed that I did. And they didn't do that for any credit or recognition. But it's a story that I have of how we are living this way in our church right now. What else can we do to be hospitable? I also think that all this talk and all this money and all this energy that we've already spent about bringing Afghan refugee families to Canada is another example of living with biblical hospitality. I mean, we had $10,000 of your money that you had donated in surplus that we could have easily spent on ourselves. And we said, no, we want that to go to a project outside of our church. We want this to go to people who are living in refugee camps, and we want to be a part of the process of bringing them to a place that's safe, that's free, and that can give their children a future. And so as we continue to not just give money, but give time and give food items and groceries and and give love and care, just realize that this is one tangible way that we live like the end is nigh. We show hospitality, but we do it without grumbling. I mean, it's one thing to do it out of duty or obligation. (laughs) I do plenty of things that way. But, But Peter says we need to do this without grumbling, without just duty and obligation. We should be moved to live this way. Can we pay the price of hospitality willingly? And I think when we do, we discover that willing service is itself rewarding, a lesson that we all need to be reminded of from time to time. This past week, my family and I had the opportunity to be out at the lake, and it was just a beautiful, wonderful time out there with our friends, Neil and Judy. And there was just enough of us there, and our kids are old enough, that we wanted to make sure we shared the work. And so we made two different duty teams for the setup and cleanup of each meal. And our kids were involved for the first time. And at first, they did not, they weren't big fans of that idea. You know, this is, we're at the lake, what do you mean? I just want to go over here and do this and play there or jump in or whatever the case may be. He said, nope, you're going to be part of the work. But as soon as they accepted that this was going to happen, whether they liked it or not, they were the most eager in setting the table and in cleaning up afterwards. It was a good lesson for them to say that when you're willing to serve, when you serve and are hospitable willingly, it is rewarding in its own right. So not only are we to love stubbornly and to host willingly, again, hosting in in a broad, deep sense of that term, we need to also be serving one another graciously. Serve graciously. Now, the truth from the Bible is that once you become a Christian, once you trust in Jesus as your Savior, and you, and you know the end of this story, then, then because the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, dwells within you, you have been given a spiritual gift, each and every one of you. So whether you feel like it or not, whether you consider yourself a very gifted person or not, is besides the point. As Peter reminds us in verse 10, he says, as each has received a gift, each and every person. So do you know what your spiritual gift is or what your spiritual gifts are? If that's something you haven't thought about before, you can let me know. I can put you uh, in touch with a few spiritual gift tests, and they are just a very good preliminary way of thinking through how God may have gifted you. But these 
tests. And even the lists that we get, not just in Peter's letters, but also a lot in Paul's letters, none of them are meant to be exhaustive. Meaning the Bible never said, these are the only spiritual gifts that exist. They just give a number of different gifts as, as, a, as an example and some of the, the big ways in which God can, can choose to bless us in this way. But, but Peter says, as each has received a gift, uh, use it to serve one another as stewards of God's varied grace. So varied means there's a multitude of gifts. God is being incredibly creative. So don't be limited to a spiritual gift test. Just allow that to be a launching point so that you know the way that God has gifted you. God is incredibly creative in this way. So feel free to prayerfully consider thinking outside the box. Take a test, but then ask yourself, ask others, how do you think God has gifted me? But we must remember two things if we are to use our spiritual gifts properly. These are the most two important things. We need to remember that these gifts are not from us, and we need to remember that these gifts are not for us. So clearly, if they are a spiritual gift, they've been given, and that giver is God. Peter goes one step further and says that we are stewards of these gifts that we have been given. And and, and stewardship is different than ownership. So so we treat something differently when we own it than if, if somebody else owns it and we are trying to take care of it. So, for example, if you get in a car, you may drive your car very differently than if you're driving a car that somebody else owns. At least I would hope that you would drive that car a little differently. So if I lend you my car, drive it differently, then maybe you would drive your own car. Of course, you might be just that much more careful or cautious because you are well aware that you are taking care of something that doesn't belong to you but belongs to somebody else. And that's the same thing with our gifts. They belong to God. He has given us, them to steward. And so in order for us to be a good steward of these gifts, we must put them into action, which is what verse 11 is all about. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies. What is he saying? He says, if you've been given the gift to speak, speak the truth that God gives you. Use this gift and rely on God. If you've been given a gift to serve, serve. Put that gift into use, relying on God's strength. Serve um, as the spiritual gift has allowed you to serve. Whatever gift you have, use it well. That's what verse 11 means. But Peter is also adamant that the gifts that we steward are from God, but they are not from us, nor are they for us. They are not for our own benefit. They are for the benefit of others. Use your gifts to serve one another. And when we use these gifts to serve one another, we also use our gifts to glorify God, which is the culmination of the entire passage that we read together. This is an important part of my story and my life and my call to ministry. I've long since known that I was gifted in some way to speak and and to convince people of certain things. (laughs) And I could use that in so many different ways. And at the end of my high school career, I was really set on going into the sports business world. That was my goal. That was my dream. That was my desire. And that was how I wanted to use this giftedness. And it wasn't until I was in grade 12 and on a missions trip to Peru, and I was sharing the gospel, the good news of Jesus, through a translator. And there was uh, three generations of women living in a ramshackle house that all came to faith through the translator, through the words that God allowed me to speak. And when I got back to camp that night, God spoke very, clearly, clo- uh, very clearly to me. And he said this. He asked me a question. He says, is there anything more important than this? 
So that's the question I had to answer. I knew the way that I had been gifted. And I knew I had many different ways and opportunities to use that gift. And God was saying, what is the priority? The time of the end is drawing close. We have to live differently. And we have to live with different priorities. And so for me, when I got to Providence College, I changed my, my tack. I changed my major. I went into ministry. And for you, your story is going to be different. God is, has a varied multitude grace of which he has gifted you differently, placed you in different positions and situations. It's not a call for everyone to go into full-time ministry. But the question God asked me is the same one I pose to you. What is more important than this? Serving one another, pointing people to Jesus, and hopefully, hopefully at the end of the day, if we live this way, more and more people will trust in Jesus and know how the story ends as well. So as the music team comes back, I want to remind you of the ground that we've covered today. We live differently because we know the end. Just as I watch a game differently when I know how it ends. The end is nigh. So be prepared by loving stubbornly, hosting willingly, and serving graciously. And when we live this way, God will be glorified. Let's pray together. God, we know that the end of the story is already written by you. As Corinne shared earlier, we believe in your sovereignty, your holiness. We believe that that you are authoring this redemptive story. And we know the end. God, you are are holy. This story is about you. We want you to be glorified. And so, God, I do pray that as we live prepared in our own lives and as we love one another and serve one another, that we never allow these things just to stay at that level. This is not just about how we treat each other as peers, but God, we keep our eyes up, fixed on you, pointing people to you, glorifying you, because the end is drawing close. And we want so, so, so many people to know and trust the end of that story, one that is full of hope and love, relationship and life in Jesus Christ. Amen.